Why are Opportunity Zones more important now than ever before? And what legislative changes are being considered to improve the impact of the policy initiative? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina was one of the original co-sponsors of the Opportunity Zones legislation and still remains a key supporter and champion of the initiative. Today, I'm pleased to have as my guest, Senator Scott's legislative assistant, Emily Lavery. Emily is one of the foremost Opportunity Zone policy experts in the country, and she joins us today from Washington, D.C. Emily, thank you for joining and welcome. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate the kind invitation and the opportunity to chat a little bit further. Yeah, absolutely, Emily. It's great having you on the show today. I've actually uh, attempted to get someone from Senator Scott's office on the podcast for quite some time because obviously he was, as I mentioned a minute ago, quite influential in making the Opportunity Zones legislation a reality. I know that uh, the senator and his office and, and you have been very busy with justice reform these past several weeks here, and we were just chatting a few minutes ago before we hit record about the fact that Congress is currently on recess, where it seems like you're still uh, as busy as ever. Is there some truth to that? Yeah, that is absolutely correct. You know, I think 2020 is certainly in no mood to be slowing down. Um, so we'll see what shakes loose over the next few weeks. But it's it's been a very interesting August, to say the least, and we're only halfway in. Yeah, interesting August and an interesting year, uh, of course. Absolutely. So, Emily, in, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and the ensuing economic crisis that we're finding ourselves in mm-hmm. now, why are Opportunity Zones now more important than ever before? Yeah, absolutely. So we know that our low-income communities are often the first hit and the last to recover in times of recession. The data following the 2008 financial crisis made that extremely clear, in particular with respect to Opportunity Zones. So if we look at just the census tracts that are now designated as Opportunity Zones in the 2006 to 2010 and 2014 to 2018 periods, which again are very much so the recovery periods and the time where we saw the American economy not only recover, but begin to take off, um, in particular with respect to 2017. So even as median family income increased by 17% at the national level between those time periods, incomes actually declined for the median family in 27% of Opportunity Zones. Beyond that, poverty rates increased in more than half of designated census tracts between those same time periods. And at the same time, median family income declined in half of the tracts, even after adjusting for inflation. Altogether, about 3,500 Opportunity Zone census tracts, or 45%. Registered population declines between those same periods, 2006 to 2010 and 2014 to 2018. This is a total shedding of about 1.4 million residents. So even as you saw the American economy slowly claw its way back and then again return to this booming period, Opportunity Zones remained left behind, um, so much so that we saw an aggressive shedding of residents over time when the rest of the economy was taking off. So in short, you know, Senator Scott is extremely grateful um, and thrilled that we have a tool like this already on the books and ready to be used as a recovery tool to ensure that low-income communities are not once again left behind as hopefully the American economy returns to business as usual. Um, You know, again, we're looking at a V-shaped recovery period, and the goal with Opportunity Zones now 
Um, and really the opportunity here is that we now have a new chance and opportunity to ensure that low-income communities are not once again left behind. Yeah, they de- absolutely were left behind during the previous recovery period of about a, a decade ago. That was a large part of the reason why Opportunity Zones, that policy was created in the first place, was because while the rest of the nation was booming in a huge economic recovery, as you mentioned, a lot of these Opportunity Zone communities did get left behind and did have increased rates of poverty and increased rates of job loss, as you as you mentioned. Emily, before we go any further, could we actually back up and, and get uh, your story a little bit more? I'd like to hear a little bit more about you and your background. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? When did you start working for Senator Scott and what is your exact role in the senator's office? Yeah, absolutely. So I actually joined Senator Scott's team in 2015 um, after I had graduated in 2014 from the University of South Carolina for my undergraduate degree. Um, so I've done with Senator Scott for a little over five years now, which has been fantastic. Um, I've kind of handled a, a variety of policy issues over time, but I've consistently worked on his tax portfolio. I served under Shea Hawkins, the then tax counsel, during the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, um, and of course, the passage of Opportunity Zones. And of course, when Shea moved on, um, I was able to move into his role um, and now serve as the legislative assistant overseeing Senator Scott's work on the Finance Committee with respect to tax, and in particular, with respect to Opportunity Zone implementation. Fantastic. Yeah. And Shay is no stranger to the podcast. He was my guest on an episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast back in June of last year, and he's doing terrific work with his Opportunity Funds Association. Emily, okay, so you've been with Senator Scott for a few years now. So you were there at the outset of the Opportunity Zones legislation initially being introduced to Congress and then eventually getting passed as part of the tax reform bill at the end of 2017. What was that like? Can you walk us through a little bit of the history of getting the Opportunity Zones legislation enacted? And and what was that like for you? Yeah, absolutely. So as you know, Opportunity Zones as a concept was originally introduced through the Investing in Opportunity Act. Um, So on the Senate side, that was Senator Scott and Booker that were championing it over here. And on the House side, it was Representative Tiberian kind. Um, And so the bill was first introduced on our side in 2016. Um, And really, I think it it had always been a keystone piece of Senator Scott's opportunity agenda, which, you know, he's been very vocal about over time as being his overarching purpose within the Senate is restoring opportunities for Americans that have been locked out of it for far too long. So Senator Scott was one of the four original architects of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which, of course, you know, was our opportunity to reshape the tax code to put Americans first. Um, And again, Opportunity Zones, I think, just fit so beautifully into that narrative and into that bill in a larger scale. Um, This is also one that Senator Scott has been extremely vocal about over time. He spoke to the president about this during tax reform. Um, and kind of on the heels leading up to that debate as well. Um, It's enjoyed a lot of bipartisan support in both the House and the Senate over time, at one point boasting over 95 bipartisan co-sponsors between the two in just its standalone form. So again, Opportunity Zones, I think, really created a fantastic opportunity to ensure tax reform bill really did take a hard look at how we can better assist and restore opportunity for our low-income communities in particular. Um, So seeing the Opportunity Zones bill included and passed um, 
within the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, I think was such a historic moment for really redefining what the path forward would look like um, for low-income communities across the country, especially as the American economy began taking off on the heels of tax reform's passage. And so securing inclusion of opportunity zones within TCJA was a historic and you know monumental victory, I think, for Senator Scott and for for the team as well, um, as well as for you know the other members that supported it over time. And so that was a really incredible experience for me, both working under Shea at the time. Tax reform was definitely a whirlwind experience, to say the least, you know, and something that only happens, I think, once in a lifetime for a whole staffer's perspective. And so it was a really, really incredible opportunity, I think, for me to be learning from and working with some of the, the best folks, most brilliant minds that the Hill has to offer. And of course, you know, for a member like Senator Scott, who really prioritizes, you know, again, that agenda of putting low-income communities first. I think that was just a, a memory for a lifetime, for sure. Good. Definitely a milestone moment uh, for Senator Scott's office, I'm, I'm sure. I want to shift back to COVID-19 now. You and I were on a panel actually earlier this month talking about COVID-19 and opportunity yeah. zones and how opportunity zones can can respond to the to the crisis. How are opportunity zones faring right now at this moment, August 2020 during the uh, COVID-19 crisis? What what are you seeing? What are you hearing? Yeah, so absolutely. Um, you know, I think you and I have discussed this a little bit before um earlier as you mentioned, but there's no question that COVID-19 has had a horrific impact on virtually all sectors of the American economy and the American marketplace, um, as well as, you know, the global economy and really has rejiggered the path that we were on. You know, just six or seven months ago, we saw the most holistic and robust economy that I think this country has ever seen. And eight months later, here we are. Um, so, of course, you know, it's been a difficult time, I think, for virtually all industries and all sectors. Um, as we sort of grappled with the economic impacts and realities of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, fortunately, you know, we continue to hear really incredible stories, you know, without reporting legislation on the books. It's, it is very difficult to have that kind of all-encompassing data ready. Um, but, you know, even more recently, the Economic Innovation Group's National Opportunity Zone Survey found that despite the fluctuations caused by the pandemic, most respondents said that investors remain actively engaged in the Opportunity Zones marketplace and are still actively looking for new opportunities to place capital. Um, you know, thanks to the work of Mike Novogratik and his team, you know, in just the two years since the zones were originally designated, they're tracking more than $70 billion in planned investments and more than $10 billion in equity raised. And again, that's just from one site tracking roughly 600 public funds. So it's a, it's a narrow but very real window into the marketplace and is so useful, particularly during this time. Um, you know, again, opportunity zones are continuing to lead the way for community revitalization, affordable workforce, housing development, and job creation. Um, you know, again, we're in a very fortunate position in that we do get to hear about all of the great anecdotal evidence and stories coming in all the time. You know, more recently, a startup in Erie, Pennsylvania just saw a $1.2 million investment. In Michigan City, Indiana, Opportunity Zone Capital is being used to reinvent a dilapidated historic building that has sat vacant since the 70s. In Minnesota, OZ Capital is going towards a new clinic providing healthcare services to our nation's veterans. In Delaware, Second Chances Farm, the state's first vertical hydroponic farm, secured a $1.5 million investment. In Arizona, Launchpad, which is a co-working company that also focuses on removing barriers and providing education and mentorship to accelerate startup success. 
um, will be opening its first location in Mesa. Their new space will lease about 28,000 square feet, um, providing about 67 new individual offices, which is incredible. And even more recently, um, in Nebraska, another fund has entered into a $14 million partnership with the city to transform an old granary into a hub with new housing, retail, and a business accelerator. Um, businessman Gordon Witten said that his goal with the accelerator is to create 10 new businesses with 100 new jobs in the next two years alone. Um, he also said that without the Opportunity Zone designation, he would not have thought to invest in the area. So again, we're seeing new investment choices being made because of the incentive itself and driving capital and delivering opportunity and job creation and positive community amenities and growth because of the incentive, which I think is, is really incredible. And again, not something that's necessarily always reported on. No, I agree with that. Uh, the, you know, one of the criticisms of the program is that a lot of the capital is flowing into opportunity zones uh, like it normally would have otherwise. And I think there is sure. a certain amount of that taking place, investments receiving capital that that would have received it with or without the incentive. But as you point out, there are plenty of projects out there, anecdotal evidence at least, to suggest that there are a fair amount of projects that are receiving capital because of the Opportunity Zone incentive, or at least in large part due to the Opportunity Zone incentive. So it's it's important to highlight those, and I'm really glad you bring all of those case studies up. Those are those all sound like fantastic projects. You mentioned earlier that you know part of the problem that we're having is there is no reporting requirement, or and and the reporting is kind of slow to come from IRS. IRS has not actually right. issued any reporting yet. I, th I think we're going to get our first report from them. Uh, next summer, I believe. And uh, I know that the Council of Economic Advisors, the White House is working on some Opportunity Zones yeah. reporting at, at the at this very moment. Novogratic, as you point out, uh, has highlighted several hundred funds that have an investment capacity exceeding $70 billion. $10 billion has actually been raised so far to date, or at mm -hmm. least as of their last update, which was a few months ago, I believe. Emily, what do you think needs to happen with regards to reporting? Do you think there needs to be a legislative change, or do you think, are you happy with with what IRS and Treasury may provide on a yearly basis? Or, you know, if you if you had a magic wand and can and could uh, bring about any sort of reporting change that you could, what what would you do? What do you what do you think needs to happen? Well, I think if I had a magic wand, you know, me personally, I would certainly secure passage of Senator Scott's Bipartisan Impact Act, which not only reinstates reporting requirements, but really bolsters them to a level that I think um, really outshoots even the original reporting requirements that were always baked into the legislation. So that's one thing I do like to remind folks of um, when I can and, and where possible is that the Investing in Opportunity Act always in, included reporting requirements. Those were stripped out during tax reform due to the reality that, you know, we were operating under specific Senate rules, including the Byrd rule, and unfortunately, they were struck um, under those rules. So again, the legislation has always taken reporting into consideration, right? The reality is, is that we want to understand um, and be able to measure and provide data points for the actual impact on the communities that the incentive is designed to benefit. And so the reporting um, legislation Senator Scott introduced last fall, early December, the Impact Act really goes extremely far in terms of 
including a broad scope of granular data to really understand the impact of the zones over time, as well as the comparison between low-income census tracts that were eligible to be designated, but were not designated. Um, so again, in terms of just the breadth and scope of what I think would be a fantastic reporting answer, I very much so lean towards the impact tag. But that being said, we were also extremely pleased last fall to see IRS and Treasury step up to produce new and improved reporting forms for funds and investors alike. And they really went as far as they could, um, you know, within their existing abilities and authorities to ensure that we would have as much data on the books as possible with respect to opportunity zone investments and investors alike. Um, so I was thrilled to see that action. I know Senator Scott was extremely excited to see that action. And that really helps, I think, put us on a better path forward as we talk about long-term data collection. And so the Impact Act actually also takes that into account. Um, and in terms of bolstering reporting requirements, it also locks in some of the you know, massive leaps forward that Treasury and IRS made so that we would have consistent data points over time. So that was fantastic to see. And then more broadly, you know, we know that there's a lot of bipartisan report, support rather, for reinstating reporting requirements. Vice President Biden in his op-ed recently indicated support for opportunities more broadly, but specifically reporting requirements. The U.S. Conference of Mayors also recently passed a resolution showing bipartisan support for opportunity zones and reporting requirements as well. So, again, it's, it's you know, very much so a concept that I think both sides can agree on, um, and hopefully we can move something soon to get that rolling. Do you think any legislation changes may take place before the election this year, or are we looking into 2021 for any new reporting legislation to come to fruition, in your opinion? I mean, we're going to certainly continue pushing to get that bill passed into law as soon as possible. You know, I think a lot of us thought that we would already have had, um, you know, another tax title having moved before the August recess. Of course, negotiations broke down. And so that's difficult because, of course, you know, we need to have a vehicle to attach something like that to. Um, and so, you know, as we're talking about sort of the pseudo crystal ball, we typically have an end of year package that has a tax title that we can attach items to. Um, but of course, we're still sort of waiting in the rafters to see what's going to happen so that we can deliver phase four relief um, to the American people with respect to recovery efforts for the pandemic. Um, so, you know, again, it's, it's difficult to see what we're going to be able to achieve before the election, um, but we're going to continue pushing to get this thing done. Good. Earlier this year, Senator Scott, along with eight other senators, authored a letter to the yeah. Treasury Department making 10 specific requests of the Treasury Department regarding Opportunity Zones. Could you tell us a little bit more about that letter and some of the most important points in it and what has resulted from that letter so far? Yeah, absolutely. Senator Scott knows that we simply do not have the luxury of ignoring the new reality that this pandemic has created within the American economy. For this reason, he led a letter to Treasury and IRS on May 4th requesting critical relief to ensure that entrepreneurs, community organizations, and the taxpayers working to use Opportunity Zones incentives for good are not wrongfully punished for the delays that COVID-19 has caused. Um, as you mentioned, Senator Scott was joined by eight other members that included Senators Young, Roberts, Cassidy, Gaines, Langford, Sass, Blackburn, and McSally, and actually a similar bipartisan letter was sent on the House side shortly thereafter. Um, but specifically, the letter outlined 10 requests for Opportunity Zones relief during the pandemic. Some of the more significant asks included extending the 180-day investment period by three months, starting on the date of the National Disaster Declaration and throughout the rest of 2020, 
preventing funds from failing the 90% asset test until at least July 15th and making clear that testing dates after July 15th and before January 1st would you know, be given particular consideration for funds that fail due to delays caused by the pandemic. The third sort of top line request was ensuring that the 24 month extension for the use of working capital by Opportunity Zone businesses is applied due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And similarly, ensuring that the 12 month extension available for funds to reinvest proceeds proceeds rather is also applied due to the pandemic and again the final regulations had that sort of baked in so we just wanted to ensure that COVID absolutely applies and that those extensions should be granted. Um, another major request was Senator Scott's request to extend the 30-month substantial improvement timeline by 12 months and then some additional requests baked into the letter were items like making sure that opportunity zone businesses are not punished for things like following telework orders or similarly using intangible property outside of zones per telework orders or for delays in construction due to the pandemic. So I'm thrilled to be able to say that IRS and Treasury took quick action and delivered meaningful relief just five weeks later, which is an unprecedented and I think really um, you know, applause-worthy turnaround time. Um, the new guidance extends certain 180-day investment windows until the end of the year, gives folks more time to meet substantial improvement timelines, gives funds more time to invest and ensures funds, businesses, and projects are not held liable for circumstances beyond their control by allowing for a reasonable cause exception for the 90% asset test throughout the end of the year. So I'm happy to go into the weeds a little bit more if you'd like, but again, you know, while the future of the pandemic remains uncertain and more guidance and flexibility could be necessary down the road, I think one thing remains certainly clear, which is that we absolutely need to get reporting and a timing extension done as soon as possible. And I think that the action that IRS and Treasury took to deliver meaningful relief this quickly amidst the pandemic and, you know, when requests were absolutely swirling with additional needs and asks from Treasury and IRS, this was a, a huge and pivotal moment, I think, in terms of the future of Opportunity Zones for 2020 at the very least. Agreed. Yeah, a lot of great points brought up by Senator Scott in his letter to Treasury. I, I don't want to get too much into the weeds at the moment here, but I will be sure to post a link to the letter on the show notes page for today's episode. And our listeners can find those show notes by heading over to opportunitydb.com slash podcast. But yeah, Emily, uh, like you said, a lot of great points in that letter. And I was very pleased, as you were, I'm sure, to see Treasury respond and implement so many of them and so quickly because it provided a lot of much needed relief to the Opportunity Zone marketplace. Emily, I want to talk to you about the need for manufacturing re-onshoring or supply chain re-domestication. There's been a call for for that to happen in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, so we're not as reliant, our manufacturing isn't as reliant on, on foreign entities, so we can bring more of our manufacturing back here into the United States. Do you think that Opportunity Zones can be a key component in that effort to re-onshore our manufacturing. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. You know, I think you're absolutely correct. There's been a very robust conversation underway at the national level about the need to onshore and secure our supply chains. For that reason, actually, Senator Scott, a few months ago, introduced a discussion draft bill called the Made in America Act, which was also introduced in the House side by Representative Carter, um, which would look at creating a new federal tax incentives for companies to onshore into Opportunity Zones specifically 
for the production of PPE and qualified pharmaceuticals. So again, you know, we did put out sort of our draft bill text to solicit feedback from stakeholders and industry and just begin the process of really kind of moving the ball forward in terms of that conversation at a national level. Because again, I think, you know, you could not have been more on the money with your point that the need to really shore up domestic supply chains has been so obviously um, been called into question by the pandemic. And so um, you know, I think you're seeing a lot of members really wanting to step up and take a hard look at the issue and understand what the options are and what we can do. And again, I think Opportunity Zone should absolutely be a part of that conversation. As we're talking about onshoring, it's a great opportunity to ensure that, once again, our low-income communities are not overlooked um, as areas that are ripe for investment. So if we need to produce more PPE in this nation within our borders, why not put one of those manufacturing facilities within an opportunity zone? Is that the the point behind what, Absolutely. what, what you're talking about here? Yeah. And so what what kind of conversations have been going and, and how might that actually look in practice? Would there be what would be so what would again, be the what would be the key incentive for bringing our manufacturing back into this country? Again, yeah, absolutely. So um, the MADE Act would actually create a new federal tax incentive sort of outside of the Opportunity Zones program. But like a lot of bills that we've seen introduced over the last few years, uses Opportunity Zones as the geographic requirement. Um, so it's obviously a bit outside of the scope of the original incentive itself and creates a new incentive in this space. Um, so again, that's one option that we're looking at. Of course, Senator Graham has championed um, you know, another provision that similarly looks at onshoring and creating incentives in that space, you know, in particular with respect to the production of PPE. Um, so again, we've put our discussion draft out there to really kind of begin this process and, um, you know, put sort of a stake in the sand, if you will, um, as one option to look at as we're discussing, discussing the path forward um, on really creating and ensuring that the rules we have on the books and our tax code is prioritizing our domestic supply chains. Um, you know, as again, I think this pandemic has made all too clear that we have not done a great job of doing so over the past few years. One other thing that is brought up uh, frequently in regards to getting relief or extending opportunity zones is potentially extending the 2026 year end deadline for recognition of capital gains. What are your thoughts on extending that deadline that or that sunsetting period? And do you have thoughts about possibly reaching across the aisle involving Senator Cory Booker and his team? What what are you what type of efforts are you going to to get that deadline extended? Yeah, absolutely. So the reality is our community organizations, entrepreneurs, small businesses, and developers need more time to plan and harness the potential of this incentive. You know, 2020 has hit us all particularly hard. And we at the federal level need to be doing absolutely everything we can to ensure an equitable recovery for all Americans. Of course, Opportunity Zones were designed to help ensure that our low-income communities are not once again left behind as the economy surges forward or, in today's climate, returns to business as usual during the expected V-shaped recovery period. Um, in short, you know, providing a two-year timing extension would, of course, first and foremost, restore the seven-year benefit, a huge benefit under the bill provide folks more time to cope with recession and uncertainty brought about by the pandemic and give communities more time to plan and take advantage of the brand new tool. Again, extending this deadline is something Senator Scott has been vocal about since last year, and there's also a lot of support for such a fix. A survey conducted by the Economic Innovation Group, EIG, 
in late May actually showed that 64% of respondents feel that an extension of the 2026 deadline would make the incentive a more effective tool for the recovery period. Um, more recently, in June, the U.S. Conference of Mayors passed a resolution at their annual meeting in support of Opportunity Zones. The resolution specifically covered a number of benefits that the zones have brought about beyond community-centric projects and outcomes. For example, how Opportunity Zones have fostered greater interaction between mayors, economic development professionals, community stakeholders, and investors with unique insights into the distinctive needs of disadvantaged communities. But with respect to your question, the resolution also specifically stated that reinstating reporting requirements and extending the deadline are critical to the excess and durability of the incentive. Um, so again, you know, we'll continue working to see how we can get this done as soon as possible. It would be great, in my opinion, to see this accomplished along with the final passage of the Impact Act, which of course would reinstate reporting requirements as well as bolster reporting requirements that are currently on the books. Um, but the legislative landscape for the rest of the year does remain quite uncertain. But again, you know, we're seeing more and more support on both sides of the aisle at the grassroots level, um, at the very least, for such an extension. So we'll see what we can get done this year, but it's absolutely, I think at this point, a top need for the incentive. Yeah, so Emily, just for our listeners who may be new to Opportunity Zones or not be aware of what we're talking about, that 2026 year-end deadline is the last date in which capital gains can be recognized and rolled over into Opportunity Zones to receive all the benefits. That that end date is December 31, 2026. A capital gain that's recognized beyond that date is not eligible to receive any of the tax benefits associated with Opportunity zones. So that's the extension that Emily and I have been discussing here for the past couple of minutes. Emily, turning to you again now on the extension, what do you think an extension would actually look like practically? Are we are we talking about extending it one year or two years or five years or or more? What what would you like to go for there? Well, I think we certainly need to see a two-year extension, obviously, just with respect to reviving that seven-year benefit, of course. Um, and again, I think that that would be really helpful in terms of giving communities and small businesses and entrepreneurs more time to plan and take advantage of the zones in their backyard um, or the zone that they are already currently existing within. Um, you know, of course, we're starting to see more and more examples of startups receiving investments, small businesses receiving investments, um, which is incredible. And again, you know, having only the final regulations come out, what, eight months ago now. Um, it's really incredible to see the level of uptake that we've seen for this infant incentive so quickly. Um, and of course, you know, we saw final rules with respect to investments into active businesses come out a little bit later, of course. So, um, you know, I don't think it's, you know, any surprise that that would take a little bit more time. But again, you know, we're really thrilled to see the level of uptake that we're seeing in that arena. And more time would only, again, I think, serve to benefit um, the incentive overall, as well as the communities and the entrepreneurs and small businesses that it's designed to benefit. Good. We are in election year, as we've discussed a couple times now. We're less than three months away uh, from election day. Uh, if Biden were to win the White House we and we see a potential change in presidential administration, how do you anticipate that that might affect opportunity zones? What do you think might happen? Yeah, absolutely. So I don't think that um, there's any question that the Trump administration has been a huge supporter of the incentive from day one, um, you know, standing up the White House Opportunity Revitalization Council, um, putting out new and expanded supporting forms, you know, the litany of actions taken at the agency level to provide priority for opportunity zones. 
has been extensive and incredibly beneficial um, to the incentive as well as its implementation more broadly. So again, I don't think that we could be more grateful for the work of the Trump administration and really ensuring that the incentive has what it needs um, to ensure that the communities that it's designed to benefit, again, are able to do so um, and really greasing the wheels on that process. So that's been fantastic. In terms of um, the outcome of the 2020 elections, um, you know, if we were to see a situation where, you know, we did have a transfer of administrations into a Biden administration, which obviously we now know would be a Biden-Harris administration, um, you know, of course, I think that naturally brings up some questions about items included within tax reform or items like opportunity zones. Um, that being said, we were thrilled to see um, Biden showing some support for opportunity zones in his recent op-ed which has been fantastic. And of course, you know, more broadly, the incentive has always enjoyed bipartisan support, um, especially I think what's been really amazing is seeing the emergence of that support really growing and bolstering at the grassroots level with respect to the recent work of the US Conference of Mayors. So again, we fully expect to continue seeing bipartisan support and it's been really great to see Biden, um, you know, really kind of taking a magnifying glass and shining some light on his potential support for opportunity zones and specific support for restoring reporting requirements. So again, that was that was a good moment for us. Um, and we continue to see bipartisan partnerships within Congress doing work with respect to introducing bills that touch on opportunity zones that in many ways expand opportunity zones. So um, I'm hopeful that we'll continue seeing that kind of support. And I'm hopeful as well. I think everybody was a little bit nervous for a while, uh, not sure what might happen if the Democrats were to take office uh, come come January of 2021, especially when Bernie Sanders was leading the race for for some time. But uh, yeah, it was nice to see Biden earlier this month put out that piece on on his initiatives, and he has a section on his website now uh, that discusses opportunity zones. It looks like he is fully in favor of opportunity zones. He may want to reform them and put his own stamp on them. Uh, but sure. I, think, uh, I think at the you know, I think even if he were to take power in the White House. Uh, I don't think opportunity zones are going anywhere anytime soon. So I just like to remind our listeners, and I get some people who are nervous about that possibility. They think the Dems will take power and uh, and strike down opportunity zones. I don't think uh, that's anything to worry about at this point, not from anything I can see anyway. That's what we're hoping. Very good. Well, Emily, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today and getting your perspective on opportunity zones from Capitol Hill. Before we go, can you tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about you and Senator Tim Scott? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Senator Scott's website is always a really great place to start out. Um, you know, he's a litany of information, not only about Opportunity Zones, but of course, about the Impact Act and, um, you know, more recently, the regulations that we put out within our press space on the website. So that's always a great place to start to just, you know, stay in the loop with all the work Senator Scott is doing in this space. And of course, you know, just keeping a close read on what we're planning to, to tackle next. Fantastic. And for our listeners out there today, I will have show notes for today's episode on the Opportunity Zones database website. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And there you'll find links to all of the resources that Emily and I discussed on today's show. I'll be sure to link to Senator Tim Scott's website, his 10-point letter to Treasury, the Impact Act, and also the Made in America Act. Emily, again, really appreciate the time you took out of your day to speak with me and our listeners. Much appreciated. Thank you. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.